Welcome back to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director of Thrombosis Canada. I'm Jamil Abdul-Rahman, hematologist from Toronto General Hospital. And we're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs from Thrombosis Canada. We hope that you find this program interesting and informative. In this episode, we'll be discussing a recent publication from Current Oncology entitled Treatment Algorithm in Cancer-Associated Thrombosis, Updated Canadian Expert Consensus, and co-authored by a cross-Canadian team of thrombosis experts. We are joined today by two of the authors, Dr. Vicky Tagalakis, an Associate Professor of Medicine at McGill University and an attending in the Department of Medicine of the Jewish General Hospital. She is Director of the Division of General Internal Medicine at McGill University. She is a research scientist in the Center of Epidemiology and Community of Studies, Lady Davis Institute for Medical Research, Jewish General Hospital. She holds several peer-reviewed grants. She is co-lead of the Quality Improvement Platform of CanVector, a CIHR-funded national research network on venous thromboembolism. And Dr. Marc Carrier, the head of the Division of Hematology at the Ottawa Hospital, a professor in the Faculty of Medicine, Department of Medicine, and senior scientist in the Clinical Epidemiology Program of the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. He holds a Tier 1 Research Chair in Venous Thromboembolism and Cancer from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Carrier is also President of Thrombosis Canada. Dr. Tagalakis and Dr. Carrier, thank you for participating in our podcast today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So um, uh, it's great to have you both here. And I'm going to start the, the conversation by asking, what was the motivation to update the CAT algorithm? Uh, thank you, David. I think uh, the motivation behind that was that it had been a few years since uh, last our group had update, had provided guidance on the management of cancer-associated thrombosis. And we felt uh, that uh, the Canadian uh, perspective needed to be addressed, uh, having been that there had been new data that had been uh, published since the last update. And so uh, we got together and uh, regrouped and looked at the uh, algorithm, uh, integrating some of this uh, newer evidence. So um, which healthcare group or groups uh, is this mostly directed toward? I I think we meant it to be uh, universal, really. We all know venous thromboembolic disease is often treated by general internal medicine, hematology, thrombosis specialists, sometimes vascular uh, medicine as well. And in the setting of cancer, uh, often medical oncology need to have a few pearls about management of cancer-associated thrombosis. General practitioners of of oncology also often manage this complication. So we really meant to have an algorithm that could be applicable to all the different types of uh, healthcare providers, including pharmacists and nursing, nurse practitioner, nurses at the bedside. That's great. Um, and can you tell me what were the most important changes in the latest edition of the algorithm? That's a great question. Um, I think to begin with, we wanted to clarify some of the concepts that were included in the first algorithm. So we had gotten quite a bit of, you know, questions and feedback since the last algorithm regarding, you know, 
who are these patients with cancer-associated thrombosis? For example, would you include patients with incidental or as well, and as a result, asymptomatic uh, thrombotic events? Uh, would you include patients with upper extremity uh, deep vein thrombosis in this CAT algorithm? Uh, so we made it a point of highlighting that, yes, uh, those individuals should also be considered when uh, managing um, uh, and, and applying this algorithm regarding the management of cancer-associated thrombosis. I think another important aspect was to clarify what is meant by high-risk uh, bleeding and giving examples of uh, high-risk type of bleeding situations uh, related to um, not only gastrointestinal, because that is an important aspect that we wanted to highlight, uh, but we also wanted to give situations such as, you know, um, uh, liver disease, renal failure, uh, you know, that kind of uh, situations. And we wanted to be more clear about that. Um, we wanted to highlight the new study that had been uh, published since the last uh, iteration of this algorithm. And that was the Caravaggio study uh, that uh, addressed the molecule apixaban. Uh, versus a fragment in patients with cancer-associated thrombosis. And so we wanted to incorporate uh, that information in the algorithm as well. Um, I guess another highlight would be to clarify um, what is meant by high GI bleeding risk and which type of patients um, with the GI malignancies are at higher risk. And we had had uh, you know, post hoc type of data coming up from the earlier trials. Um, and there was specifically, we wanted to highlight that we were talking about, you know, intraluminal GI tumors, uh, specifically to the upper GI tract, for example, uh, versus the lower GI tract. And so we wanted to highlight that a bit more in the algorithm. Um, other things that come to mind is touching upon the special patient populations uh, for example, discussing weight issues, the extremes of weight, um, and, and providing some data for the obese patient population or the high BMI patient population. Um, I think, uh, you know, those were the major highlights uh, that I can think of that we wanted to bring attention to in this second iteration. Great, thank you. So there's a great figure in the document uh, detailing in the treatment of VTE, should we be doing low molecular heparin or DOAC? Um, it seems in general, uh, higher bleeding risk, you're thinking more low molecular heparin, drug-drug interaction, you're thinking more low molecular heparin. Could you give us an overview of the walkthrough of the decision process in cancer thrombosis? Should we be doing low molecular heparin or DOAC? What should we be thinking about? What should we be considering? It's a great question. As you highlighted when you look at the six randomized controlled trials that have compared DOAC to low weight heparin for cancer-associated thrombosis, we see that DOACs are associated with a lower risk of recurrence, but a slightly higher risk of major bleeding, admittedly not statistically significant, but an increased risk of clinically relevant non-major bleeding that is statistically significant. So the aim of the algorithm was really to go through the different steps or highlight things to think about when you tailor anticoagulation for that patient population. And the first thing is make sure that your patient is not at high risk of bleeding. As Dr. Tagalakis mentioned, we wanted to refine the definition. What do we mean by high risk of bleeding? And the second step is think about the tumor type. 
because as mentioned, some postdoc analysis have shown that certain patient may be at higher risk of having a bleeding complication, intraluminal GI and GU, for example, and not necessarily major bleeding, but also clinically relevant non-major bleeding. The third step is to think about drug-to-drug interaction because no doubt that DOACs have less drug-to-drug interaction compared to vitamin K antagonists, but still more than lomacoid heparin based on the CYP3A4 and the glycoprotein P. So make sure you don't have any drug-to-drug interaction because some drug-to-drug interaction may be different from one DOAC to another and certainly different from a DOAC to lomacoid heparin. So pick the right option for you. And then lastly is patient preference. Go through the numbers with your patient and make a decision together. So these are the four different steps that we think about when we tailor anticoagulation for this patient population. Perfect. That's very helpful. Thank you. So then once we've decided DOAC versus lomalacrid heparin, with the DOAC, we have edoxaban, rivaroxaban, apixaban. With our lomalacrid heparin, we have tintaparin, deltaparin, enoxaparin. Uh, I'm unaware of any head-to-head trials for these studies. So how, how would you pick which specific DOAC or which specific lomalacrid heparin? Uh, that's a you know a very good question, and a lot of considerations come into play when trying to decide. You know, once I've made a decision that I'm going with low molecular weight heparin, which low molecular weight heparin do I go with? Uh, truth be told, that there are no, as you mentioned, a clear trial type of data that provide head-to-head, you know, comparisons between the different low molecular weight heparins. And so more often than not, my choice of using a low molecular weight heparin uh, will depend on, you know, familiarity and ease of use and which low molecular weight heparin I'm uh, most familiar with, uh, given that I work out of a hospital center. Um, a lot of our formularies use only one low molecular weight, our formulary uses only one low molecular weight heparin. So I've adjusted to, to use that. But there are subtleties, obviously, with the different low molecular weight heparins. Uh, the subtleties have to do, obviously, with um, the dosing that they have and vis-a-vis the uh, weight ranges, for example. And so those can vary between the different low molecular weight heparins, and you can consider that. Um, the other thing could be uh, related to um, you know, renal function. And, and so, for example, uh, there may be, there is a... Uh, um, uh, more, I guess, robust data to suggest that, for example, with tinsaparin or even daltaparin, uh, you could potentially think about using them in patients with lower creatinine clearances as opposed to enoxaparin. So those are type of things that I think about when dealing with the low molecular weight choice. When thinking about which DOAC to use, um, once I've made the decision that I want to use a DOAC, um, I think uh, for sure what comes uh, to mind are uh, uh, patient reimbursement plans and the provincial plans that exist within my province to reimburse uh, the the, the DOAC. So they're not equivalent across every molecule in the DOAC category. So uh, one thing I want to sort of highlight to the audience is that to be familiar with what your provincial reimbursement plans are. Um, it may be though that your patient has private insurance. And so that may not be an issue, although there are, uh, you know, issues related to, uh, uh, the type of, uh, coverage exists with the number of medications that cancer patients end up having. And there may be a maximum that thereafter, there may not be added coverage for that DOAC. Having said that, uh, molecule issues, 
when I look at river oxaban, it's usually my least go-to uh, DOAC, given that the uh, trial data or the data for river oxaban is not as robust as it is for edoxaban, nor is it as robust uh, for apixaban, given that they had the least amount of patients in their trial. And there were methodological issues with the trial um, that uh, really sort of impact on the robustness of the data. And so it's my least sort of go-to. And then between adoxaban and apixaban, uh, I find that um, they are direct oral anticoagulants that I use equally between the two. It usually comes down to um, one, one of the things with apixaban is the Caravaggio study did show Perhaps that, uh, you know, when it comes to major bleeding, um, there seemed to be an equivalence uh, when compared to uh, low molecular weight heparin, whereas with adoxaban, there seemed to be a slightly higher, although we don't have a direct, direct comparison between the two. Um, and so often uh, looking at drug-drug interactions may be an important issue there, uh, given that they don't have uh, exactly the same profile when it comes to drug-drug interactions. So looking at your patient, what kind of medications they're taking, what kind of therapeutics for their cancer, and also addressing that may differentiate between the two DOACs. Thank you. So one of the uh, challenging scenarios I find in cancer thrombosis is the duration of anticoagulation. Specifically, we're seeing more and more maintenance therapy. So for example, the cancer is in remission, but now the patient has continued on therapy. So for example, letrozole or rituximab or some other targeted therapy, which may not be particularly prothrombotic, but they're going to be on it for sometimes years. Um, could you comment a bit on the duration of anticoagulation and how would you manage these scenarios in which cancer is in remission, but they have this ongoing maintenance therapy? It's a, it's a real challenge for a clinician, Jamil, and um, we only have really five pieces of information that can guide us on the benefit and risk of anticoagulation for secondary prevention. So beyond the initial six months, there's two single arm studies of low microwave heparin uh, for 12 months, with one with delta, delta parin, one with tenzaparin, and indirect evidence saying that in the second six months, the risk of recurrence remains relatively high and the risk of bleeding is not higher. We have a similar analysis or post-hoc analysis from Okusai VTE cancer, where in the second six months, again, the risk of recurrent VT remains relatively high despite anticoagulation, risk of bleeding is small. So indirect evidence, again, that if your patient is at higher risk of recurrence, they may benefit from extended duration anticoagulation for secondary prevention. There's the second randomization of SELECT-D. Remember, they had a second randomization after six months, randomizing patients that had an index PE or residual vein obstruction to continuing rivaroxaban or placebo. They had to stop it early because often physicians and patients have a strict opinion about if they should continue or stop. But they, they showed that, you know, despite only, I think it's 94 patients, the hazard ratio was much lower in those that continued rivaroxaban. So again, a little bit of evidence there. There's the recent observational study uh, from the Nordic countries looking at Pixaban 2.5 that was recently published in the JTH. And soon enough, Dr. Tagalakis will publish her uh, pilot study using StepCat, so decreasing the dose of lomacroid heparin to prophylactic and oxaparin 
after the initial six months of anticoagulation. So uh, although we do have some data, we don't have a lot of things to help tailor anticoagulation. And then your specific question about a patient in remission that receives maintenance is really a challenge. So what I usually do is I sit down with a patient, I try to guess estimate what's the underlying risk of recurrent cancer. If it's, for example, it's a long cancer patient stage three, so sure, they're in remission. They may be undergoing some maintenance therapy, but the risk of recurrence is relatively high, I mean, from their underlying cancer. And therefore, if it is high, then the risk of recurrence is probably a little bit higher from a a VTE point of view. And then if the risk of bleeding is also on the low side, then I would tend to favor some form of anticoagulation. What type and dose remains Another question for which APICAT, the randomized control trial, randomizing patients to PICS 2.5 or 5 milligrams POBID will help. And obviously, the the um, this, this study by Dr. Tagalakis is reassuring about prophylactic dosing, uh, but it's really on a case-by-case basis. Thank you. Um, another issue that the uh, document highlights is the challenge of polypharmacy. So there's more and more drugs coming up in the world of oncology. It's hard to know, are these drugs, do they interact with DOACs? And are those interactions clinically significant? Uh, The document talks a bit about having a pharmacy-led drug um, interaction evaluation. Uh, Some centers, many centers might not have uh, this. In centers that don't have these resources, do you have any um, specific... I guess, resources you consult or any uh, approaches to this scenario? How, how do you deal with these? Yeah, that's a, also a very good question. And uh, something that obviously with increasing usage of direct oral anticoagulants in this population and, and the comfort level that we may have and the experience that we get uh, uh, from uh, ongoing observational studies and postdoc analyses that are ongoing looking at specific um, Uh, effects of uh, drug interactions on a risk of recurrence, as well as risk of bleeding in these patients. So far, we seem to have encouragement that at least with the small numbers that we have, um, these interactions don't seem to yet play a significant role. But nonetheless, um, the answers are not entirely all there yet. And in the meantime, Yes, in certain uh, high sort of volume centers where there is a cancer uh, unit associated with your center, more often than not using your oncology pharmacist, I think is the first go-to resource. So if you are in a cancer center or your hospital is associated with a cancer center, uh, using your uh, cancer pharmacologist or pharmacist, sorry, would be the way to go. Uh, number two, I think the up-to-date, uh, access to up-to-date and the Lexicom database that is associated should also be another resource that uh, several physicians should be able to have access to and use. Um, and then, uh, and, and I have used it several times when I don't necessarily have access to a pharmacist. Uh, And thirdly, uh, there is some uh, resources, for example, Micromedics is another uh, uh, pharmacy database, although a subscription would be needed for this, and and, and they do also have apps uh, uh, available, Um, uh, physicians could explore with their institutions to see if uh, access to uh, Micromedics is uh, uh, available and can also be used to address uh, drug-drug interactions. But I think um, uh, 
key would be if you don't have a specific anticoagulation pharmacist or thrombosis pharmacist, then using your cancer uh, uh, pharmacist uh, using up to date uh, is also quite uh, good as well. Great, thank you. Um, so another issue that comes up often is renal impairment. Uh, the document talks a bit about that. Uh, there's a nice table in table two. Um, so in determining, so there's different, I guess, creatinine clearance, clearance cutoffs used in the clinical trials. You discussed Hokusai, Carvaggio, uh, Selecti, uh, which are different from what's recommended in the product monograph. Uh, are you comfortable using the lower thresholds in the product monograph, or would you recommend sticking to what's been tested in the clinical trials for the cancer clots? There's wide practice variation because there's very little data that is supportive. Um, and I tend to be a bit conservative and I tend to use the creatinine clearance cutoff that were used in the randomized control trials. And the reason for that is because when you looked at product monograph and now they would say for edoxaban, apixaban, and rivaroxaban, you can consider all the way down to creatinine clearance of 15 cc's per minute. But this is based on observational studies of patients, often with atrial fibrillation, a little bit of VTE. But we know that our cancer patients have a number of different comorbidities, and they're generally at higher risk of bleeding complications from anticoagulation compared to non-cancer patients. And when we start for a treatment of VTE, if you taught us think about rivaroxaban or apixaban, you give big doses for the initial portion of the, uh, of the treatment. And therefore, I tend to be very careful and mindful about creatinine clearance in that setting. So I tend to use a creatinine clearance around 30 cc's per minute, but I acknowledge there's a lot of practice variation around that. Thank you. And then another challenging uh, issue, which I've seen different practices, so I don't know if you guys have specific preferences, but in patients with uh, cancer and they have a catheter-associated thrombosis, the catheter, they're treated, the catheter is now removed. So that risk factor is gone, but they still have the underlying cancer. Is this someone who you'd want to continue anticoagulation or would you say, well, the catheter is gone, we can stop anticoagulation? Uh, yes, also a very controversial area. Uh, and uh, there is, as you said, uh, variability in practices. And actually, there is, there's variability in my own practice sometimes. Um, for sure, we have data. Uh, um, and data is going to be coming forward, but we have data that certainly while the catheter is in place and functioning, uh, we can anticoagulate and keep the catheter in place for usage, uh, and and so allow that catheter to be used for cancer chemotherapy or um, for use of uh, other types of um, uh, medications or a need for supplemental nutrition or whatnot, and still incur a very low risk of of uh, thrombotic uh, thrombosis um, as well as bleeding. Uh, however, uh, what to do, uh, and the guidelines and recommendations uh, generally uh, will highlight to uh, keep it in and treat for a minimum of three months. Now, if that catheter is removed uh, before that three months is up and one wonders, do, does one continue? I generally will uh, treat patients for the minimum of three months and then sort of do a case-by-case -case kind of uh, analysis of the patient to determine if I continue on in a sort of secondary prevention mode that I would do, for example, in, in a patient who did not have this type of risk factor, and but has cancer. 
Um, so who would potentially be somebody that I would stop? So somebody that we discussed earlier is probably near remission or in remission. So I would feel that that risk of thrombosis is not as significant a marker or player in this patient's overall risk. And so in that individual, I would probably not opt to extend beyond the three months uh, with secondary prevention. However, if it's a patient who has ongoing high burden disease and by high burden, for example, there is uh, evidence on restaging of advancing cancer. Um, and then that individual, he, I would tend to uh, continue anticoagulation. Um, obviously, uh, and it goes without saying, um, uh, it, there's always a risk assessment vis-a-vis -vis the bleeding aspect and making sure that we're balancing those concerns as well. There's a little bit of data uh, from Aurélien Deluc, uh, one of the middle career investigators in Ottawa. It's an observational study, but he, he did follow patients that had upper extremity catheter-related deep vein thrombosis, uh, treated for three months, and then followed those uh, that stopped anticoagulation but still had underlying cancer. And the risk of recurrence was relatively high, as Vicky mentioned. And... Um, you know, if you think about it, you have a little bit of data for primary prevention. Maybe these patients would make the cutoff anyway to be on some some kind of anticoagulation to prevent VTE from happening. Um, so I do a very similar thing where I look at what's the risk of recurrence and the risk of bleeding and, and do an, a case-by-case -case decision. All right. Thank you both. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you both for your insightful answers to all our questions. Um, before we finish up, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered uh, so far? Uh, well, I think I would want to just sort of summarize and add that we understand that this is a extremely um, um, a specific sort of situation dealing with cancer-associated thrombosis, but there are there are many nuances uh, to this problem. And yet, I think what we have tried to do with this algorithm is to help physicians guide them in managing um, their patients while taking into uh, into um, uh, into consideration the different nuances and how we can mitigate some of the uncertainty there. Uh, it's a science or I guess a field that's always evolving, um, but uh, certainly we hope that the CALP algorithm provides some sort of guidance uh, that can help mitigate some of these uncertainties. I completely agree with Dr. Tagalakis. And uh, for the listeners, there are a number of tools on the Thrombosis Canada website clinical guide for management of cancer-associated thrombosis, and also the tool for the drug-to-drug -drug interaction, because that can be an important challenge. So use the algorithm, but also use the different tools that are available on the Thrombosis Canada website. Well, that's great. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your, your input and your feedback. Uh, it's been a great uh, interview with uh, the two of you. Um, I'm going to close by uh, thanking our listeners uh, for participating or listening to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thromboscanada.ca. Please subscribe so that you are notified about the release of 
new episodes. And don't forget to check out our website for educational programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, uh, we'd appreciate if you'd please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. Thank you both so much. Uh, really appreciate your participation in this uh, in this podcast uh, episode and uh, look forward to uh, working with you again soon. Great. Thank you so Thanks, much, Dave. Jamil, it's nice seeing you. Yeah, Bye, see you. Thanks so much. <laughs>